Good morning. It's great to be with you. I'm uh, Jim Jolly, a past trustee and currently a member of the foundation. It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker, David Lucas, who uh, is a fellow member of the Covenant Foundation. David was born in Pittsburgh, and uh, I often tell people that my wife was from the north, that she was born in Pittsburgh, and she was. She's a native of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and uh, David is from the original Pittsburgh from Pennsylvania. David went to Purdue University where he graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Management. He then went on to Harvard Business School and graduated there with an MBA in 1971. He then began a, about a 12-year career in department store retailing working in Cincinnati and in Nashville. And it's interesting, during those 12 years, he progressed from merchandise trainee to senior vice president of merchandising. He then joined a specialty store chain known as Margo's, based in Dallas, Texas, as their president. Margo's was a regional chain that had 84 stores in Texas and surrounding states. And David had been there for just about a year when his uh, father-in-law died and he left to help work with the disposition of his estate, which consisted primarily of Florida real estate. Mr. Lucas then became chairman of Bonita Bay Properties in 1985 and has held a position ever since. During his tenure, the Bonita Bay group, as it's called now, became a strong factor in the development of that whole region of Southwest Florida. I want you to pay close attention here. Uh, it's amazing what that group has done. They developed seven master plan communities, the majority of which were highly amenitized, high-end communities. And the total sales in these communities, these seven communities, exceeded 10,000 homes. So that would be roughly equivalent to a town with 25,000 people, if you will. The company also built and operated 14 championship golf courses, two marinas, three beach clubs, and three restaurants. David is also very active in his community and he currently serves as the chairman of the board of the Fine Mark Bank in Fort Myers. He also serves on many nonprofit boards, including the Reform Theological Seminary Executive Committee, the United Way of Lee County, Canterbury School, Southwest Florida, Florida Community Foundation, Florida Gulf Coast University Endowment Committee, Covenant Colleges Foundation Board, and he's an elder and treasurer of the PCA church that he attends. David has been married to his wife, Linda, for 43 years. He has three children and five grandchildren. And as a personal aside, I've been privileged to know David the last two years on the foundation. And he is a man who loves and serves the Lord. He's, as you can tell from his resume, a very successful businessman, a great leader, and a man of strong spirit and fortitude. So join me and let's give a warm welcome to David Lucas.
It's a pleasure to be here. This will be the second time I've addressed this group. I spoke to a chapel gathering in 2008 at the urging of Troy Nabal. So it turned out to be a very good experience for me. So when Troy asked me to come back, I quickly agreed. The last time I was here, I was asked to speak on stewardship. And I broadened the topic a little and spoke on stewardship and servanthood. This time I'd like to talk about these things using the concept of wisdom as a framework. Wisdom is defined by Wikipedia as, quote, a deep understanding and realization of people, things, events, or situations, resulting in the ability to apply perception, judgments, and actions in keeping with this understanding. It often requires control of one's emotions, the passions, so that universal principles reason and knowledge prevail to determine one's, one's action. Wisdom is also the comprehension of what is true, coupled with optimum judgment as to action. Synonyms include sagacity, discernment, or insight. Not bad, but a little wordy for me. I prefer wisdom is skill in the art of living. Let me repeat that. Wisdom is skill in the art of living. According to Confucius, wisdom can be learned by three methods, reflection, the noblest, imitation, the easiest, and experience, the bitterest. My hope and goal for this speech is that it prompts a few of you to consider the arguments I'm making and hopefully incorporate them into your worldview. Most of my wisdom has come as the result of experience, the bitterest. My hope is that you'll acquire most of yours through reflection and imitation. I suppose the first question to examine after having defined wisdom as skill in the art of living is, how do you get wisdom? Before I attempt to answer that question, I must pause to look at another subject to give the proper framework to this discussion about wisdom. That's the topic of love. Wisdom is worthless without love. If you get nothing more from this speech, take that away with you. Wisdom is worthless without love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. I must admit this is a lesson I am still learning, but I can assure you it is essential to the art of living. Jesus said as much when he questioned about the greatest commandment. His answer was, love God with, all, with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Understanding and practicing this commandment is essential to being successful in the art of living. You must love God, yourself, and your neighbor to live wisely and well. To love God, we need to look at Jesus as our model. Remember, imitation is the easiest way to acquire wisdom. His love for the Father was perfect. The point is, the second part of the verse is, love your neighbor as yourself. The point is, you can't love someone else if you don't love yourself. We love ourselves because we're God's children. His righteousness has been imputed to us through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. We do not determine our self-worth by measuring our accomplishments. That would result in loving ourselves when we succeed and loathing ourselves when we fail. We have intrinsic worth as children of God. Accomplishments have nothing to do with that. What about loving your neighbor? Well, to begin with, you can't do that unless you love yourself. Think about it. If you're full of self-loathing, how can you love someone else? 
In fact, you'll end up, you will end up loving them as you love yourself, not, not at all. Having completed that thought, which is essential to the topic of wisdom, let's get back to the main event and ask, how do you get wisdom? According to the Bible, the answer is simple. You pray for it. James 1.5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him pray for it. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The question is, how do you know you lack wisdom? Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that'll kill you. It's what you know for sure that ain't so. There's a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom in that quote. The application here is that people who need the wisdom the most are most likely to think they already have it. People who are truly wise are more likely to recognize a continuing need to accumulate more wisdom. It's a little like recognizing your true spiritual condition. Mature Christians are able to recognize their sinful nature and realize the depth and breadth of the evil they're capable of committing. In contrast, many immature believers and non-believers think they're, quote, pretty good people on the whole. They don't know what they don't know. How then do we get wisdom after we ask God for it? Wisdom is a little like sanctification. It's a process. It's acquired over time. Remember the Confucius quote, wisdom can be learned by three methods, reflection, the noblest, imitation, the easiest, and experience, the bitterest. The first way, reflection, has been largely deleted from most people's daily lives. We're in such a rush these days, we don't have time for reflection. However, the need to lead an examined life is just as great today as it ever was. Leading an examined life means that we don't react mindlessly to life, lurching from crisis to crisis. Rather that, that, rather that our actions are guided by a set of principles that we've carefully and thoughtfully considered. These principles mold our core values. The definition that Jim Collins gives to core values in his business classic, Good to Great, is that they are foundational principles of the business, non-negotiable, and they'll be followed even if they cause short-term harm to the organization. I think that's a pretty good definition. When applied to individuals, it could be stated, core values are the things that are the non-negotiables in your life, beliefs that you're willing to risk everything for, things that you would do even if they hurt you in the short term. So the reflection that leads to an examined life leads to the, to the development of a set of core values, which is essential to the development of wisdom. Your core values give you a lens. Through that lens, you view the world and make value judgments about everything in your life. It takes courage to look steadily through that lens and acknowledge that there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. The concept of absolute truth, that there are things which are inherently right or wrong, is at the foundation of the Christian worldview. The Bible has revealed truth from God. We know there's such a thing as absolute truth and that it can be accessed by prayer, Bible study, experience, and reflection. Your core values need to be anchored in the bedrock of absolute truth or they will wash away with the storm. Today, this understanding has largely been replaced by a philosophy that everyone should tailor his or her beliefs to suit themselves. As long as you aren't hurting anyone, whatever you believe is fine. I said earlier, wisdom can be learned through experience. We can see the result of seeing, thinking that all things are acceptable. It's anarchy and chaos. Judges 21-24 describes the reason for the disintegration of, of, of the state of, of Israel very succinctly. 
quote, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what has this process of defining core values and determining worldview done for me? I think it's led me to the realization that I'm not the master of my own life. I'm a servant. My job is to serve God and seek his will. In addition, I feel that I'm a particular kind of servant, a servant leader and a steward. This gives me a framework for my life and helps define me. I believe our natural role on this earth is to be servants. Because of the fall, we resist that role. However, first and foremost, we're here to serve God. He is the creator, we're the created. Creation is about him, not about us. As creator, God owns us, we're his servants. In fact, he owns us in two ways. First, he created us, so he certainly owns his creation. Second, he redeemed us, or bought us back from sin with the blood of his son. This act of redemption, at tremendous cost to himself, should humble us and make us want to submit to his will. We see this truth in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Next, we're called on to serve our fellow man. You've all heard such stories of successful men and women who've reached the top of their profession, only to say, is that all there is? Tom Brady said it after winning the Super Bowl a couple years ago. The answer is obvious. No, that's not all there is. You may have success, but you lack significance. In order to get significance, you need to be involved in something bigger than yourself. You need a cause. Worthy causes always involve helping others, serving others. However, this is not the way the world looks at this subject. Servanthood is not a very popular concept with many, if not most, Americans. The idea that you should humble yourself and dedicate yourself to helping others less fortunate than you doesn't mix very well with the get-ahead-at-all-costs mentality that is so prevalent today. It's one thing to help someone when it's convenient for you and when little money or time is required, but it's quite another to put people ahead of yourself. On top of that, we regard servants as an inferior class of people. We feel we should have people serving us, not the other way around. What conclusions can we draw from the observation that we're meant to serve? First of all, it's the key to happiness. We're happy when we're doing what we're supposed to do. I think it's important to differentiate happiness from pleasure. People often confuse the two. Pleasure is momentary. It fades and often leaves a void. In addition, the pursuit of pleasure often causes suffering in other parts of life if it's taken to an extreme. Happiness, on the other hand, results from a servant's heart, a right relationship with God, and a dedication to a cause bigger than oneself. There's a measure of contentment relating to happiness, while pleasure usually leads to discontent and a need to top the experience that led to the pleasure in the first place. Just as the servant mentality promotes happiness, it also guards against despair in times of adversity. Knowing that you're not in charge, that God is in control, and that he loves you and wants the best for you is a very powerful source of comfort during times of trouble. Everyone will encounter these troubles. But remember, in this life, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You control your attitude, and suffering is an attitude. You have all been told that adversity builds character and teaches important lessons. I like the ironic way Samuel Johnson, the 18th century English writer, put it. He said, Adversity is the state in which a man most easily becomes acquainted with himself, being especially free from admirers then. It's often been said that defeat is a better teacher than victory. 
I must confess, this never made sense to me. How could doing things wrong teach you more than doing things right? However, having been through a major defeat, I now understand. You must be broken to have a servant's heart, and that's what God requires. It's important that you understand what, what I mean when I use the term broken. It does not mean that you're damaged beyond repair. It means you're willing to submit to the will of God. It's hard to humble yourself. If, it's hard to be humble if you've never been humbled. You heard in my introduction I had two careers, department store, specialty store, fashion merchandising, and land development. My first career lasted 13 years and involved seven promotions and an 800% increase in my salary during that time. I had occasional setbacks, but it was pretty much a straight line. The land development business was a much more complicated situation. It came about because my father-in-law decided at the age of 65 that he wanted to be a master plan community developer. He owned a company called General Nutrition, GNC. He built the company from a single store to over a thousand stores and was very successful. He decided to invest in large tracts of undeveloped land in southwest Florida in the late 70s. Shortly after this decision, he was stricken with cancer and died in 1984. He was sick for two years prior to his death, and his business suffered from his absence. Through a series of miscalculations and miscommunications, the situation became very difficult. GNC stock, which had been selling for $30 a share, plummeted to $2 a share. The bank that lent him the money to buy the land decided to stop funding the loan and asked to be repaid. Shortly before all this happened, the executors of his estate asked me to become involved in a, on a full-time basis in the estate and the company. Over the next five years, we were able to turn GNC around by changing management. The new team got the stock back to $11 a share, and then we sold the company to Thomas Lee, a leveraged buyout firm. With the funds we received, we were able to finance the land development company. From 1989 to 2005, we were very successful, with a couple of down years and a lot of up years. 2005 to 2012 was a different story. We were caught with too much debt, and in order to avoid bankruptcy, we had to inject another $180 million into the company and sell the clubs to the members. As I look back on it, this experience was humbling and painful, but very necessary. 17 years ago, I had a 26-month span of time when my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. My daughter was kidnapped and nearly beaten to death, and I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. These were very trying times, but they didn't break me. These were things that just happened. I didn't cause them to happen, so I wasn't compelled to take responsibility for them. I relied on my faith to get me through the crisis. The reversal of my business was a different story. The Great Recession put practically everyone in Florida who was in the real estate business into some kind of jeopardy, and a great many of them went bankrupt. I could take comfort in the fact that I had a lot of company and the business environment was terrible. But looking back, I could see mistakes that I made that contributed greatly to our misfortune. That plus the un unrelenting waves of bad publicity and negative comments in the press and the community were very hard to bear, particularly when people made judgments based on distortions and falsehoods. God used these circumstances to wash the arrogance out of me and make me realize that I'm not in control. He is. That realization led me to the topic of servant leadership. I've tried through the years to be a servant leader in business and in my various civic activities, succeeding sometimes and failing other times.
I'm convinced this is the proper leadership style. Let me talk a little bit about this and how it applies to you. I assume that many, if not most of you, will take on new responsibilities in your life after college. For that matter, I'm sure that many of you have quite a bit of responsibility now and significant opportunities to be a leader. The prevailing view of leadership today is that the leader sits at the top of the pyramid and issues orders to his underlings, and they go out and follow his instructions. This, this idea, when applied to leadership, produces the puppet master leader. He's the guy at the top pulling all the strings and making all the decisions. To quote Jim Collins again, he's the master with a thousand slaves. The idea of the servant leader turns this concept upside down. The ultimate model of the servant leader is Jesus. He showed us this when he washed his disciples' feet and when he said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The concept of servant leadership is often misunderstood. It does not mean that the leader is just along for a ride and, or the ride and doesn't make a contribution or that the inmates are running the asylum. His or her role is to be a servant to the core values of the organization. Let me say that again. His or her role is to be a servant to the core values of the organization. As I said earlier, the core values of an organization are what determines its identity and direction. They're non-negotiable and, in fact, need to be followed even if they cause short-term harm to the organization. They determine which way the current is flowing in an organization. We all know it's easier to swim with the current than against it. The application here is that the leader determines which way the, the tide is flowing in an organization by modeling and applying the core values of the organization. It's his or her job to make sure that it's easy for employees to do the right thing. When employees do the right thing, they should be on with the tide, not struggling against it. I tried to apply these principles in my business. For over 20 years, I stressed that what I wanted was for people in our company to do the right thing. Eventually, this became part of our culture. It was the acid test of any action or behavior. I tried to create a culture where this was the natural choice. We did this by putting the customer first and always trying to exceed expectations. In addition, we had policies that encouraged volunteering and civic involvement on the part of our employees, giving them time off to participate in these activities. We contributed 5% of our pre-tax profits to charity and matched our employees giving to the local United Way on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis. We also created a culture of empowerment in the company. People were encouraged to make decisions rather than to look to their boss to decide for them. These practices, along with many others that I don't have time to detail, led to a great deal of success and a very profitable company. This led me to another important concept, the concept of stewardship. Stewardship is a concept built on the premise that we do not own our property and possessions. We're simply stewards caring for these assets. The point is that God is the ultimate owner of everything. This point is well established in Scripture. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it, Deuteronomy 10.14. The land is mine endured but aliens and my tenants, Leviticus 25.23. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me, Job 41.11. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2.8. An interesting article by the Trinity Forum called Money and Property, Whose Is It? explores the roots of the ownership question. 
quote, the view represented by Jews and Christians was that human beings have a qualified right over, pro over money and property. Or put more precisely, God has the ultimate ownership, but we have the stewardship of money, property, and our talents. In the true sense of the old English word steward, we are responsible for the prudent management of an estate that is not our own. So stewardship involves the realization that your money, possessions, and talent are not your own, but are ultimately owned by God, who owns everything. Your responsibility is to use these assets wisely and for good, not just to make yourself comfortable. In addition, you know you'll be called to account for the way you spend your resources while here on earth when you die and face the Lord. How should this principle of stewardship affect our, our use of assets? As students, you may not have much in the way of financial and tangible assets, but you'll accumulate these assets as your life goes on. My advice is to be faithful with a small amount, and it will be easy to be faithful with a larger amount. In other words, even if you don't have a lot of money, use some of your money now to do good. Don't wait till you have a surplus. You never will. If you do accumulate a large amount of money during your life, you'll find that it's a mixed blessing. I've made a lot of money, and I've lost a lot of money so I have a little experience with the subject. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice, it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. We picture Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' A Christmas Carol when we think about the love of money, but let me assure you, it's much more subtle than that. The problem with money is that it heightens the illusion that we have control over our lives. In reality, money produces choices not control. God alone is in control. We can't control whether or not we're going to take our next breath. Again, let me say, control is an illusion, and money heightens that illusion. It's easier to drift away from God when we think we have adequate resources on hand to deal with adversity than when we're stripped bare of our resources and forced to fall on our faces before God and beg for relief. We think we can buy our way out of any problem, and we take the problem to God as a last resort not as a first inclination. The reason our thinking goes wrong on this subject is we consider the money to be our own. We think we're the owners and not the stewards. If we would stop to realize that the money is not ours, but we're merely caretakers of earthly assets, we wouldn't grasp at it so much. We've covered a lot of ground today, so I'd like to summarize and tie this speech together. Let me say, I'm not trying to give you the answers to the questions that I've posed. I'm giving you my conclusions. They're my answers. You have to discover your answers for yourself. I began by saying I wanted to talk to you about wisdom, skill in the art of living. We talked about a framework for living, about how core values form a worldview, and how that worldview should be based on love as an overarching principle. We looked at servanthood and stewardship, two of the things that are most important in my life. Finally, we looked at the role of money in your life. I hope you see that the, the idea of wisdom is tied up in your reaction to the problems that life presents you. Don't ask God for a problem-free life. It isn't going to happen. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and you will encounter pain during your life. Just remember, pain is mandatory. Suffering is optional. Suffering comes from your attitude toward the pain. You can rail against the pain and be full of self-pity, or you can welcome all circumstances and look at them as opportunities for growth in your life and your faith. I think wisdom gives you the ability to see your life like a puzzle. Wisdom develops over the course of your life, and, and if you lead an examined life and you ask God for wisdom, it will be granted. 
At first you think wisdom is being able to put the puzzle together. Then you realize you need to learn to put the puzzle together in the right order. Some things can't be accomplished without the proper groundwork being laid. Then you have to anticipate the effects of the moving, moving the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle, and the interaction between the pieces. There are always unintended consequences to actions. Finally, you realize that the puzzle is just a piece of a larger puzzle when someone or something takes your thinking to another level. At some point, I suppose, you realize that you'll never really solve the puzzle, but at least you begin to have a vague understanding of what the puzzle's all about. So what about the puzzle that's my life? Today, it's a work in progress. We've reduced our debt from over 500 million to 16 million, and have met all of our obligations without having to resort to bankruptcy. We still have significant land holdings and operating businesses, and a sizable stock and bond portfolio, and we're looking for new business opportunities. God has been very good to me. He's given me blessings and trials, all to shape me more for his purpose. Just a few specifics. I believe God gave me a trusted advisor and mentor when I needed him to teach me how to be a steward of my family's resources. I believe that God gave me a skilled counselor to show me how to love myself so that I could love others. I believe God gave me a loving but physically limited wife to teach me compassion. I believe that God gave me Parkinson's disease to reinforce the lesson that I'm not in control, and I've needed that reinforcement every day for the 15 years I've had Parkinson's. I believe that God allowed me to make a lot of money over a 20-year period to allow me to be a steward and servant to those in need, and then took back a large portion of it to teach me that money isn't the answer to our problems. I believe that God gave me the faith that allowed me to ask for wisdom. Finally, I believe that God gave me wisdom, and sometimes I used it and sometimes I didn't. I wish I'd used it more than I have, but I hope to do better in the future. My hope and prayer for you is that you get much wisdom and use it to discern God's will in your life. May you be effective servants in his kingdom. Thank you, and God bless you.